morning. So I'm going to share a little story to help illustrate this idea of suppression of the truth. And before I start, I just want you to remember this one thing. Uh, This happened when I was 16, a long time ago, so don't hold it against me. Uh, So I got grounded a lot growing up for doing stuff I shouldn't. And at one point I was grounded, but at the same point, I... It was this girl that I really liked and I really wanted to see and I couldn't because I was grounded. So I told my parents I had to work that night. And so I didn't have a car, so I used their car. I'm, I'm just 16. I'm going to remind you of that. So I used their car and I didn't go to work. I went over to this young lady's house and I parked in her driveway, went in, spent time together, left. And on the way out, I'm 16, remember? And I haven't been driving that long, and I'm backing out, and I turn the car a little too quickly, and crunch. The front side of the car hits a telephone pole that's like in their driveway, in my, this girl, who happens to be my wife, which is neither here nor there, uh, pole. So I went, oh, I got out, I looked at it, I go, bummer, I am dead, was my thought, I am just dead. I, I not only crashed the car, but... Where did I crash the car? At this house when I was supposed to be at work. So my wheels start spinning, and so I go home, and I do the obvious thing. I just pull in the driveway and walk away, you know, go into the house and say nothing. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to get through this. And so uh, I don't know when it was. Next day, my dad comes to me, and he says, uh, uh, Son, do you know what happened to the car? I go, what are you what are you talking about, Dad? I don't know. Well, the front end has a dent in it. And I go, I don't, I don't actually remember if I had planned this in advance or I just started the suppression, you know. Began there. I said, well, you know, at work we park in, at the drive-in. We park, you know, out there in the open and there are cars all over the place. Probably somebody hit it, you know. And I didn't even know it. I wasn't in the car. I was working. And he goes, oh, Okay. A little bit later, he comes back, son, uh, there's like wood pieces, and, and I'm pretty sure there are no wooden cars anymore, so not that there ever were, so, so how did, and so the suppression continues. I said, well, I didn't want to tell you this, I thought I'd get in trouble, but, and I didn't say I went to, you know, I didn't go truth, I went deeper into the lie. I actually, one of the guys who was there that night, he, uh, he had, didn't have a car, and he was assigned to work at the exit at the Van Buren Drive-In. You have to, there weren't those tire popper things. You had to station a guy there so people wouldn't come in the exit. And he didn't have a car, and I told him he could just take our car down. He must have, he, he must have hit something. And, and so my dad says, well, you need to talk to him about this. And I said, okay. And so from that day forward, my dad kept asking, and I, said, and I kept saying, well, he said nothing happened, I, but I don't know what happened, nothing happened, he said I, nothing happened, and uh, continued to remain in my lies, suppressing the truth, and you know what, my parents never found out, you know, the thing they'll always find out, they never found out, or at least they never, or at least they could never prove anything, let me say that, they might have, I'm sure they had inklings, but, you know, I was such a good kid, you wouldn't think I would do 
such things. I was actually successful in suppressing the truth. Interestingly enough, I was teaching a Sunday school class uh, many years ago, using that as, as an example, and all of a sudden I realized I had never told them the truth. You know, so I'm telling these high school kids, and my parents didn't even know, so I had to go fess up uh, at that point. So they, they're not shocked right now. They already knew this. So. Uh, now today we're going to see uh, that I'm not alone. Sure. <laughs> that was just one of many truth suppressions of my youth uh, that he could probably tell. I was found out on others. So, uh, to say, anyway, to, thanks, Tom, for yeah, that. Uh, today we're going to see that I am not alone in my ability to suppress the truth. Truth suppression is part of who we are as fallen humanity. Now, last week, uh, if you were here, if you weren't here, you missed out on the fun topic of the wrath of God. Uh, that's what we talked about last week. We, we talked about really just the first half of Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We have went through the introduction, the first 17 verses, summarizing the gospel, and then Paul goes in to chapter, uh, Romans chapter 1, 18 to 3.20, where he's going to talk about the human uh, condition of sinfulness. And he begins with, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is holy, righteous anger and vengeance that we talked about last week against sinful, ungodly, unrighteous humanity is revealed. It's seen and experienced throughout history. Old Testament, New Testament, current history, it, it's there. Now today, Romans 118, the second half, through verse 21, that's where we're going to be today. We're going to look at what is, uh, I think, at the heart of, the main cause of this wrath God has on the unrighteousness. It's the main, it's at the heart of our unrighteousness as human beings. After announcing the revelation of God's wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness, he describes uh, these men, he says, men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The first thing Paul says about those to whom the wrath of God is revealed is that by their unrighteousness, in their sin, in their sinful condition, they suppress the truth. Hold it down, hold it back. It's like, it's like a uh, if you picture a dam and the water rushing up against, that's the truth, but the dam is holding it back. We're suppressing the truth. So today, that's our focus. Right, we'll focus on suppressing the truth. Not that we'll be suppressing the truth. We'll ask and answer four questions about suppressing the truth. Really five questions. There's only four in your, in your uh, notes, but there's really five. Because we begin with and I want to be clear about one thing up front. We mentioned it. Tom mentioned it. I think Chad mentioned it. I want us to understand, uh, and this is the first question, who Paul is talking about. Who is suppressing the tr- truth? He says, men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Who are these men who suppress the truth? Now last week I mentioned, uh, I, uh, to, to, I, did, I, didn't, I don't want you women to think you're off the hook, that that word men is really... Uh, better translated humanity. It's men and women, human beings in the Greek. It refers to both men and women. So who are these people who suppress the truth? We could answer, Paul is speaking of the unbelieving Gentiles of his day. 
Because Romans 1, 18 through 32 uh, is focusing, as we talked about last week, on the sinful condition of the Gentile world. Then he'll go into the sinful condition of the, of the Jewish world in chapter 2. But what I want us to see in this passage and in weeks to come, when we're talking about Gentiles, even when we're talking about Jews, is that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is speaking to all people throughout history. I want it to be clear that Paul is speaking to us. As he describes the sinful condition of both the Jewish and the Gentile world, he's also describing the sinful condition of our world. He's describing the sinful condition of our hearts. He's describing our propensity to sin. He's describing the sin that easily besets us. And as we talked about last week, he's equipping us, I believe, to fight against this sin. We, uh, believers at Bridges, are people who are still prone to unrighteousness, prone to sin, prone to suppress the truth. And therefore, we need to get the truth that, and that's, this is the, the first heading there, we must fight against sin. The author of Hebrews wrote, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet restrained to the point, resisted to the point of shedding of your blood. For the believer, there is a struggle, a fight against sin in our lives. We are to resist it, uh, remembering Jesus who resisted all the way to the point of the shedding of His blood on the cross. Now last week I said that if if we're going to fight sin, then we need to understand its nature, what it's about. We need to know how it works. We need to know its effects. We need to know its results. I compared that to to fighting a disease, if you remember. If you're going to fight a disease like cancer, you need to understand what it does to the human body, how it does it, how it uh, affects the human body. If you want to find a cure, you need to understand the causes. You need to understand the symptoms. And if you're going to fight sin, you need to understand how it works as well. But there's a problem with this analogy. The problem is, when you cure a disease, when a cure is found and, and taken, then the fight is over, really. For example, smallpox. It's estimated 300 million people died from this disease in the 20th century alone. But with the spread of, vac- of the vaccination, smallpox vaccine, since 1979, uh, it's been eradicated. The disease, I mean, it was gradually It didn't happen all at once in 79. Last case, known case, I believe, 1979. The disease has been defeated. Therefore, we need not fight smallpox. So it would follow that if there's a cure for our sinful hearts, our unrighteous hearts, and we receive that cure, then the fight for sin, for unrighteousness is over, right? Wrong. The chorus should be wrong. You see, there is a cure for our unrighteousness, our our sinful hearts. The cure is the gospel of Jesus Christ, to believe in Christ. In, In Romans 3, Paul says that we receive the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. When we put our trust in Christ, in His sacrificial, uh, in our place, death on the cross, we receive from God His righteousness. We are made new creatures in Christ. We're made righteous before God. We're cured of our unrighteousness. And therefore, we no longer need to fight the sin in our lives, right? 
wrong. This is where the analogy of fighting the disease breaks down. Because even though we receive the righteousness of God, the the cure, let's say, even though we're no longer subject to God's wrath, remember last week we talked about the fact that, that even the things that are God's wrath in our world, God changes them for us. We're no longer experiencing God's wrath when we've got His righteousness. But even though we're no longer subject to God's wrath, we have His righteousness, we are still subjects Subject to the symptoms of the disease. We still sin. Some would say we retain our sin nature. Others would say we remain in the flesh, in this corrupted body, in this corrupted world, corrupted by sin. Therefore, we can still sin. But in any case, the truth is, God, in His wisdom and for His purposes, does not remove our ability to sin even after we put our trust in Him. Even after we receive His righteousness. And we know this to be true, every one of us, by personal experience. Why doesn't God just, uh, we could ask, why doesn't God just snap His fingers and remove our ability to sin? Well, it seems that in this life, living in a fallen world, God wants His people, believers, to continually experience His love and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. He wants us to experience that as we repent of our sins, as we come to Him and seek forgiveness. It seems that God's plan in this life is that His people go through a process, the theological term, sanctification, this process of learning to daily depend on Him, to fight and to overcome the sin in our lives, to be transformed. He's chosen. It's not a, a, a magic, you're done, that it's a process of growing as you stay in relationship with Him. He doesn't remove our ability to sin, but He gives us the ability to fight sin. Unlike the unbeliever, who has not received the righteousness of God, and who has not been given the Holy Spirit, we have, by God's grace, the power of the Holy Spirit. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to fight the sin in our lives. John Piper said this, What God creates in the new birth is not a sinless Christian. What He creates is an embattled, not yet perfect, Spirit-empowered, preserving, Christ-treasuring, sin-hating new being, a new creation in Christ. And that's why what Paul writes about, uh, when Paul writes about the sinful condition of humanity in Romans 1, 18-3.20, it, it applies to us. As we see the nature of sin and wickedness in the human heart, we're not just looking at, at those sinners out there, We're looking at, as as Tom pointed out last week, uh, we're looking in the mirror. We're not yet perfect. So we'll be looking at sin and evil and wickedness that we're drawn to, that we're prone to. Knowing that if we refuse to fight it, there are consequences. If we refuse to submit to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives as He pricks us, as He convicts us, if we refuse, if we don't treasure Christ, if we treasure the world, if we treasure other things, if we don't hate sin but take pleasure in it, then we will in this life continue to fall 
into sin. And so as we continue to look at the unrighteousness of humanity, remember that it's this condition, this unrighteousness that we were in Christ cured from, but it's also the condition that we're prone to seek after, prone to fall to. A little bit of a paradox there that we have to live in. But my point is, what we're looking at today, what we'll be looking at in weeks to come, the sinful condition of humanity applies to you and it applies to me. Our passage for today, Romans 18, 1-21, applies to us. We're prone to be men and women who by our unrighteousness suppress the truth. We don't allow the truth to be told. We seek uh, to explain it away. But what Paul is talking about, now, now uh, we suppress all kinds of truth. But Paul's talking about a specific kind of truth, and that's our our first question. What truth is he talking about? What truth is suppressed? Let's walk through verses 19 through 20, and we see what specific truth Paul is referring to. We, humanity, suppress the truth in our unrighteousness, verse 9, for because what what, what can be known about God, so first, We know the truth being suppressed is something that can be known about God. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Second, we know that God has shown the truth that is being suppressed to the suppressors. It's plain to them. God has made uh, this truth known. How? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul gets specific here about what's being suppressed. God has chosen his wisdom to be invisible. We don't see him. He's spirit. We can't see him with our naked eye. But he can be perceived, Paul says. Just like we cannot see the wind, but we we know it exists because we feel its effects. We see it bend trees and move uh, tumbleweeds. We feel it on our face. In a similar way, God cannot be seen, but we know he exists because we can see and feel his effects. We see him in in the beauty and the wonder uh, of nature. We see him in, in our conscience. We feel him in our conscience speaking to us about right and wrong. God can be perceived through his creation. His creation out there and his creation in here. But that, that perception of God is suppressed. Specifically, Paul says, the truth of his eternal power is being suppressed. We suppress the truth that God is eternal. Uh, that God is not a created being, that God is not part of His creation, that God is outside of the creation, that God has always existed, and that God is all-powerful. And we suppress the truth of His divine nature, that God is God, that there is He alone is sovereign over all of His creation, that He is God and there is no other. Paul says that these truths about God are being held down, suppressed, even though they've been and are clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. That they are seen in the things that God has made. That phrase, have been made, is one Greek word. It's a word you, as soon as I say it, you'll recognize what it means. 
It's the, it's the word poema, where we get our English word poem. God's creation, the universe, and everything in it is God's poem. And Paul wants us to know that like, like a, a poem written by any author, creation has structure and design and intention and wisdom. The poem points to a, a poet. So, there without excuse. No one will have an excuse when they stand before God. No one can say, I didn't know you existed. Because Paul says in verse 19, God made Himself plain. God reveals Himself in the creation of His universe. This is what, what, what many have called God's natural revelation of Himself. That in creation, everyone can see the truth that there is a Creator. That He has power. That He's divine. But this truth is suppressed. We see this clearly, clearly uh, in our world today, don't we? The reality of a Creator God is, is very different from the theory that our culture teaches. In our schools, our media, books, scientific journals, we're taught that the universe as we know it is a product not of God, but of naturalistic evolution. That the universe and life in particular evolved by the, by the sheer force of matter, time, chance, and natural selection. That time and chance guided by natural selection has brought about what we see in the universe and in, our, in humanity today. And therefore God as, as designer and creator has become obsolete. It's become unnecessary. But the truth is, what can be known, I mean, the truth is, what can be known about God, His eternal power and divine nature, is plain because God has shown it to them. God has revealed Himself. And to deny His existence, truth must be suppressed. And therefore, that's what we find in our world. The suppression of truth. The study of nature should be a study of God's handiwork. God's poem about Himself. Some scientists in the past, and maybe even now, have asked the question, what can we learn about God from His creation? That's the right question. Mathematician, astronomer, physicist Isaac Newton wrote, the most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Way to go, Isaac. But today, for most, the study of nature has become an ever-increasing attempt to suppress the truth that God created all things. However, even in our day, there are some scientists who are willing to question this suppression of a creator, of a, of a designer. One example is found in uh, biochemist Michael Behe's book, Darwin's Black Box, The Biochemical Challenge to Evolution. This book, published in 1986, argues that uh, a single cell is irreducibly complex and therefore the product of intelligent design, not chance. And instead of me trying to... Now, I have a degree in mathematics. My son is getting his PhD in physics, so I'm not qualified at all, by the way, uh, as a scientist. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple minutes and we're going to look at a video and let some real scientists explain really this idea of irreducible complexity, okay? Roll tape. 
I remember the first time I, I looked in a biochemistry textbook and I saw a drawing of something called a bacterial flagellum with all of its parts and all of its glory. It's had a propeller and the hook region and the, the drive shaft and the motor and, and so on. I looked at that and I said, that's an outboard motor. That, that's designed. You know, that's no chance assemblage of, of parts. Behe's reaction was not surprising. For the molecular motors that drive bacteria through liquid, each depend upon a system of intricately arranged mechanical parts. These parts come into focus when portions of a cell are magnified 50,000 times. Biochemists have used electron micrographs like this one to identify the parts and three-dimensional structure of the flagellar motor. In the process, they have revealed a marvel of engineering on a miniaturized scale. Howard Berg at Harvard has labeled it the most efficient machine in the universe. These machines, some of them are running at 100,000 RPMs and are hardwired into a signal transduction or sensory mechanism so that it's getting feedback from the environment. And even though they're spinning that fast, they can stop on a dime. It only takes a quarter turn for them to stop and shift directions and start spinning 100,000 RPM in the other direction. And just like outboard motors on motorboats, it has a large number of parts which are necessary for the motor to work. The bacterial flagellum, two gears, forward and reverse, water-cooled, proton motive force, it has a stator, it has a rotor, it has a U-joint, it has a drive shaft, it has a propeller, and they function um, as these parts of machines. It's, you know, it's not convenient that we give them these names. That's truly their function. Since its discovery, scientists have tried to understand how a rotary motor could have arisen through natural selection. As yet, they have failed to offer any detailed Darwinian explanation. To see why, we must understand a feature of molecular machines known as irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity was coined by Mike Behe in describing these molecular machines. Basically what it says is that you have multi-component parts to any given organelle or system in a cell, all of which are necessary for function. That is, if you remove one part, you lose function of that system. The idea of irreducible complexity can be illustrated by a familiar non-biological machine, a mousetrap. The trap is composed of five basic pieces, a catch to hold the bait, a strong spring, a thin bent rod called the hammer, a holding bar to secure the hammer in place, and a platform upon which the entire system is mounted. If any one of these parts is missing or defective, the mechanism will not work. All components of this irreducibly complex system must be present simultaneously for the machine to perform its function, catching mice. Irreducible complexity also applies to biological machines, including the bacterial flagellar motor. All told, there are about 40 different protein parts which are necessary for this machine to work. And if any of those parts are missing, 
then either you get a flagellum that doesn't work because it's missing the hook or it's missing the drive shaft or whatever, or it doesn't even get built within the cell. In evolutionary terms, you have to be able to explain how you can build this system gradually when there's no function until you have all those parts in place. You guys get that? All right, well, that's just one example. That's a, a, a sort of a micro example of seeing uh, God's handiwork in creation in our modern scientific world. Now, a number of years ago, uh, when I first saw this video, it's, it's, that's a clip from this video, Unlocking the Mystery of Life, and several others, I was, I was kind of blown away. I thought, how could anyone not be swayed by this evidence? How could you not see at least an intelligent designer, if not a creator God? But if you go to the internet, and I did, and search Darwin's black box, Mike Behe, you'll not find great acceptance of his work. In fact, on, on Mike Behe's, uh, so he's the one that sort of discovered this and coined that term, irreducible complexity. On his website, on, excuse me, on the uh, Wikipedia website, his Wikipedia website, I found this. Behe's claim about the irreducible complexity of essential cellular structures have been rejected by the vast majority of the scientific community. And his own biology department at Leahy University has published an official statement opposing Behe's views and intelligent design. And this shouldn't surprise us. Because we've read Romans 1, 18-21. We know that the truth about God seen in creation was and is and will continue to be suppressed. In his book, uh, the, design, the Design Inference, mathematician Mike Dimbowski points out that many well-known scientists must uh, constantly suppress the suspicion that there's design, there's a poem in the universe. For example, he quotes evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, who writes in his book, The, the Blind Watchmaker, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. And he quotes Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of DNA, who wrote in his book, What Mad Pursuit, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. In other words, to use the words of the Apostle Paul, the truth of God's poema God's design things must be constantly suppressed. And that raises our second question. Why suppress the truth? Why is this happening? Why do this? Why do scientists and others deny the existence of God? Or why, do, why, why as we'll see when we get to verse 23, why do people exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things? Why do humans deny God's existence or, or reimagine God as something less than He is? Why do they and why do we suppress the truth about God? In verse 21, Paul gives us several clues, I think. He says, for although they knew God, again, Paul makes it clear that the suppressor, at least at some point, knew God. They were able to look at creation and know there's a Creator. We, we've been taught. We have to be taught. The truth has to be suspended 
to believe there is no God. Seeing creation and believing in a creator is just common sense. However, there was a problem. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They knew there was a God. They saw his eternal power, his divine nature in creation, but they did not honor him as God. That word honor means to magnify or to glorify. They didn't glorify God. And furthermore, they didn't give him thanks. They didn't thank him for his creation. They didn't thank him for their very lives. They didn't glorify God or acknowledge that he, in fact, is their creator. You see, if we truly open our eyes and see the truth revealed in creation, the truth of the Creator's eternal power and divine nature, then our response must be one of honoring, one of glorifying, one of thanking Him. If there is an eternally, if there is an eternally powerful divine God, then we must become the, He must become the primary focus the main reality of our lives, of our universe. We must seek after Him. We must learn His ways. We must obey His commands. We're to live for His purposes. We're to live for His glory and not our own. But that's not what we want to do in our unrighteousness. We're not interested in God's glory. We're not interested in thanking Him. So we must suppress the truth of God. Our suppression does not come from an intellectual argument against God's existence. Although we go to great lengths to do that, our suppression comes from our moral decision to avoid God's control of our lives. Let me say that again. Our suppression comes from our moral decision to avoid God's control, God's rule over our lives. We don't want to glorify Him. We want to glorify us. We don't want to thank Him. We don't want to be indebted to Him. We don't want to depend on Him. We want to be in control of our own lives. We want to be the captains of our own ships, the rulers of our own destiny, to depend only on ourselves because we don't want to face the reality of who God is. So so we suppress the truth about God because we don't want to be responsible to God. And that brings us to our third question. What results from suppressing the truth about God? The answer is found in the the second half of Romans one twenty one, and and really continues on as we'll read through uh, Romans chapter 1 and beyond. They knew God, but suppressed the truth and did not honor or thank Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. As a result of their continual suppression of the truth, as a result of not glorifying or thanking God, something happens in the hearts and in the minds. They become futile in their thinking. Their thinking becomes vain and meaningless. And their foolish hearts are darkened. By continually suppressing the truth about God, we become darkened. We don't just suppress it because we we don't see it and we don't like it. But there comes a point when, when you go dark, when you, uh, excuse me, when you uh, give in to the dark side, when you don't see the truth anymore. Have you ever heard or, or told a lie enough times that you start believing it yourself? That's what happens when, when we suppress the truth about God. We don't even realize the truth is being suppressed any longer. 
That's why people will say, uh, I don't suppress the truth about God. I don't, I don't think there's any truth about God that, that exists. I don't think there's any truth about God to suppress. But Paul would say, the only explanation for not believing in God who made, who's made himself plain in creation is that your heart has been darkened. Your mind has been corrupted. You've been blinded to the reality of who God is. You're believing the lie. Because the truth is plain to see. There is a God who from nothing created the universe and everything in it. And therefore, if we suppress the truth, then it must be replaced by something else. And by definition, that something else will be a lie of a darkened heart. And we see the growth of, of this dark lie as in subsequent verses. We saw it in verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy. It just makes me sad and sick as we read this. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice the truth that's being exchanged, gotten rid of, suppressed is truth about God. And instead of glorifying God, instead of worshiping God, instead of thanking and serving God, they worship and serve the creature, men and birds and animals and creeping things. And what do all these false gods have in common? They're less than God. They're way less than God. They, they, can, ha- they, they can be made into images that we can put on shelves that we can feel like we control. They can be used to serve our own sinful purposes. Or consider verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, literally, that means they did not approve of having God in their knowledge. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. Not approving to have God in their knowledge is the same as suppressing the truth. God is true, but we don't want Him in our knowledge. So we'll suppress this truth. We'll exchange it. We'll distort it. We'll hide it. We'll run from it. So the result of suppressing the truth is that we exchange it for a lie. And we live our lives based on this lie. And so the final question I have for you, for myself today, is this. What truth about God are you suppressing? We can suppress truths about ourselves, but what truth about God are you suppressing? Now probably, I'm guessing, most of us who are here this morning are not suppressing the truth about God's existence. It's possible. You're here seeking. But most of the people that come to church believe in God. But what God are you believing in? There are other truths about God that we Christians can suppress. We need to be aware of the fact that we are prone to suppress the truth about God. We're prone to not only believe the things about God, we're we're prone to believe the things about God that we want to believe. We're prone to make God in our own image. We're prone to create a God who is based more on, on our wants and desires than the truth of His Word. That's why His Word is so important. So, in natural revelation, the, the creation, we have uh, th- there is a God. There's, there's something eternal, powerful that's done this creation. And then God gives us what, what we call His special revelation. His Word that describes who He is. Because we're prone to suppress the truth about God, we need knowledge about God. 
Let me give just a few examples of what we can suppress. Certainly not an exhaustive list. We don't want to tell unbelievers or we don't want to believe ourselves that God will judge those who do not trust in Christ. We don't want to talk about sin and we don't want to talk about hell. So we suppress the truth of God's holy wrath and His justice. But Jesus, speaking of the unrighteous, teaches, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. God is holy and just. God is holy and just and will eternally punish those who do not trust in Christ, who do not receive His righteousness. Do not suppress this truth about God. For your own, uh, I think I'm doing people a favor. If they hear about that God, they're not going to want to follow Him. Well, that's their decision. You aren't given the decision to suppress that truth. Or we want to do what we want to do, right? So we suppress the truth that, that God, that Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, but He's our Lord. Jesus said again, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. God requires those who are saved by Christ, follow and obey Christ. He is the Lord of our lives. Don't suppress this truth about him. Or maybe the biggest one, we don't want to give in to our sin. I'm sorry, we don't want to give up our sin. We don't want to take it seriously. We don't want to fight against it. So we suppress the truth of how much. I mean, we emphasize the truth of God's love and His mercy and His forgiveness. And and, and we'll get to that in a second. But we suppress the truth of just how much God hates sin. David wrote, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. God hates sin. God hates evildoers. Don't suppress this truth about Him. Or maybe your suppression is a little different. Maybe you know that God hates sin. But you've convinced yourself that He can never forgive you because of your sin. Your sin is so horrible. And you may not even realize it, that you're suppressing the truth of a God who loves and, and gives grace and mercy and forgiveness. You're suppressing the truth that God can forgive the most grievous of sins if the sinner comes to Him in repentance, seeking forgiveness and trusting in Jesus Christ. That's really the picture that we're going to see, that we see every uh, communion this morning as Chad leads us. The picture of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. As Paul wrote in Romans 3, 23-24, the truth is, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, you are a sinner. You may have even sinned in ways that are, are too terrible to imagine, that you wouldn't want anyone to know about. But, it continues, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The truth is you're justified. You're made righteous before God by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. God sent Jesus to be this propitiation. mentioned it last week. It's, it's this atoning sacrifice for our heinous sins. 
so that those who receive him by faith will be redeemed, will be saved from his wrath. This is the truth about God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not suppress it in your life. Come to him. Receive this truth. Embrace it. If you've embraced it, tell others about it. And as Chad comes to lead us in communion, let us together not suppress, but celebrate the beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, we pray for your help. We pray that you would help us uh, as we live in a world that is constantly suppressing even your existence, Lord. I pray that you would help us through the power of the Spirit you've given us. I pray that you would help us through your word to overcome the sin in our lives, to see you for who you are, to not suppress the truth of who you are, and to take that truth, the full truth of who you are and what you've done, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and take that truth to those in our world. In Christ's name, amen.